All right, one more, actually, family that we're going to embarrass. I'm going to ask the Slayton family to stand up just for a second. Um, some of our best friends in the world, Benji and Natalie Slayton and their kids, are moving tomorrow tomorrow to Chattanooga, Tennessee to plant a church. So they are going to be right in it with us, partners in the expansion of God's kingdom in a different state across the United States. You guys, many of you heard Benji when he was here just a few weeks ago preaching, and we're so excited to see what the Lord is doing in them. So I want to pray for you all for a second too. Lord, thank you so much for the Slaytons. You have used them uh, as an amazing blessing in my life, in the life of my family, and in the life of your church. And you are going to continue to do that, and we're so excited about that. We're so excited that you are taking them to be a part of the expansion of your kingdom in Chattanooga, Tennessee. So, Lord, will you bless them, their travels tomorrow? Will you bless their efforts in fundraising? Will you bless their efforts in gathering this group? And will you even be preparing people's hearts that they might hear the words of the gospel from Benji's lips? Thank you for them, and thank you for your church. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a a second later, you'll want to grab them and hear all about it. Um, Lots of fun getting to talk about church planting. Okay, let's jump in now to God's Word. We started last week a series that we're going to spend this summer in, in the Psalms. We're going to be looking at just various Psalms. There's not really a particular order to it. We're going to kind of just jump around to some of my favorites. And that's what happens when you're the guy that gets to write the schedule. You get to write in your favorites. So you're going to hear my favorites. And we are in Psalm 24 today. So if you've got a Bible, open it up to Psalm 24. Hear now the word of the Lord from Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of His salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek Him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Psalm 24 and the glorious words it speaks about who you are and who we have been called to be. We ask that you would soften our hearts, that you would speak, O Lord, and that we might listen. That you might open our ears, that you might open our eyes, that we might see who you are more clearly, that we might see Jesus, and that we might desire more fully to follow him. We pray all of this in his name. Amen. I heard uh, not too long ago a story, a really fascinating story about the city of Chicago. It was around the turn of the century. Chicago was a booming place, but like many of the booming places of that time, it was also a really dirty, really nasty place. There were no sewers, so everybody's trash just kind of flowed in the streets, and they would divert a lot of it into the Chicago River. Which was okay with them. They were okay with the Chicago River being kind of dirty, except for one thing. And that's that the Chicago River actually flowed into Lake Michigan. And Lake Michigan is where they got their drinking water. Not what you want. 
So this one really brilliant engineer came up with this idea, twofold plan. He said, this is what we're going to do. We're going to raise the entire city, the entire downtown, we're going to raise it 10 feet and build a sewer system underneath it. And then we're going to do something about that river that flows into the place where we get our drinking water. In fact, we're going to make it flow into a place that's not going to bother us much. Literally, we're going to reverse the flow of the Chicago River. And they did it. If you go to Chicago now, the river flows the opposite way than it used to. It's one of the like true engineering marvels of this century. They actually changed the direction of a river. When we come to worship, actually, that concept, that directional change is something that's really important for us. Most of us think about worship in this way. We think that as we come to worship, we come to express what is in our hearts. And so what is in our hearts flows from our hearts to our mouths, and we express that. And that is true. That is absolutely what God has called us to. He's called us to come and express what is in our hearts, to flow from our hearts to our mouths. But what is also true about worship that we don't oftentimes pay much attention to is that it goes the opposite way too. Is that what we actually put on our mouths is supposed to shape our hearts. This is one of our fundamental values actually that we hold dear about worship. That our worship should be both expressive and formative. That worship should flow from our hearts to our mouths and our bodies and our lives, but also that our mouths and our bodies and our lives, what we do and say and sing and hear in worship, changes us. It shapes us. It forms us. Now the Psalms are worship songs. Almost all of them were actually songs sung in worship, like the ones that we sing in worship now. In fact, you could say that the whole collection of the Psalms was like Israel's hymn book. It was the worship book that they took into their worship and they opened up and they said, we're going to sing this song now. And those songs, just like ours, are meant to shape. They are meant to actually shape our hearts. Psalm 24 is meant to change the direction of how we understand worship and shape our hearts. So if it's meant to shape us and it's, a, and it's a song, what's it supposed to create in us? How is it supposed to shape us? Well, there are three kind of major ways that this psalm is supposed to shape us. And the first is it's supposed to shape our understanding of who God is. As we come to Psalm 24, we are supposed to be those whose understanding of who God is actually changes, actually forms, is actually shaped by the reading and the reciting, even the singing of this psalm. It opens up actually with the Lord as the very first word. So, in English, our translations say, the earth is the Lord's. But if you look at the Hebrew, the original language, it actually starts with, the Lord. To the Lord, the earth. To the Lord, the earth and all that is in it. To the Lord, all of creation and everything that is in that creation. The very first word is Yahweh, the Lord's name. Because God is the owner of all things. He is the one who has created all things. He is the one who owns it all, who reigns supreme over it all. And so, what are we, how are we supposed to respond to a Lord who is the owner of all things? You know, sometimes uh, I will come up to my house and I'll just kind of swell with pride, right? Of like, ah, oh, it's my house. Like, I own that. I've got it. Unless, um, like now, I think my air conditioner might be breaking and then I kind of wish it belonged to somebody else. But most of the time, I think, that's mine. I'm proud of it. The Lord owns all things. He is the owner of all. 
And he's the owner of all and worthy of praise because of that, because also he has created it all. When we open up the very first words of Scripture, the first few chapters, tell us how God has spoken all things into existence. And Psalm 24 comes right out of the gate saying this, is that the Lord is the owner of all things because He has created all things. I built a chicken coop in my backyard. This is, I'm not really a builder. I don't really make a whole lot of things. The one thing I think in my life that I've built and I've been proud of was when we lived in Baton Rouge, I built a chicken coop. And I'm going to tell you, it was a pretty great chicken coop, okay? It was like tall, you could walk in, it had a metal roof, it had like different rooms, and I had a roost built for the chickens, and like little places where they could sit and hang out, and television, and no, just kidding. Uh, It was great, okay? And the chickens, I didn't think the chickens really appreciated it all that much because they didn't really lay many eggs. Um, And so I was a little frustrated. Like, I built you this Taj Mahal chicken coop. And, you know, they laid a lot of other things, like, on my deck. But they didn't lay a lot of eggs that I wanted to eat. So I wasn't real happy about the chickens. But I was pretty excited about the chicken coop. In fact, uh, we even wrote our names, you know, on one of the boards, you know, when we were building it. Because, like, hey, it's ours. We built it. We drilled the screws in. We hammered the nails. That's ours. When the Lord looks out on creation, that's what, he, that's what he sees. This is all that I have made. I have breathed life into these people. I have created the glory that is around. It's mine because I made it. That is the way that the Lord looks out and sees all of creation. And that is the way that we are supposed to understand His majesty, His glory. I wonder, do we see God this way as often as we should? You know, we in our culture deeply desire imminence, personal. We want it down on our level. We want things to feel like it's close to us and like we can manage it. But the truth is, God is both imminent, but He is deeply transcendent. He's different than us. He is glorious. He is majestic. He is mighty. He is the creator and the owner of all things. How often do we come and simply just marvel at His glory? At mar- marvel at Him as the owner, as the creator of all things. This psalm is supposed to shape in us a better understanding of our transcendent, glorious God. But secondly, it's also supposed to shape in us a better understanding of what God has called us to be. Of what God desires from His people. So we have a picture right out of the gate in verses 1 and 2 of who God is. And then in verses 3 through 6 of who His people are called to be. Just listen to these words again. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who does not lift up his soul to what is false. And does not swear deceitfully. This is describing, Psalm 24 is describing a procession of the Lord into His temple. This idea of who shall ascend the hill of the Lord. It's a very specific hill, actually, that the psalmist here is talking about. It's the hill that that the temple, the mountain that the temple was built on. So the picture here is of the holy city, Jerusalem, of God's people there and of His temple there where He has chosen to dwell and Him calling those people to come and be among Him, to come and to seek Him. And what it says is that there's a very particular kind of person that can come and seek the Lord. That can come and ascend that hill. And it's a person who is described here as having clean hands. As having a pure heart. As someone who comes and seeks the face of the Lord. But what do those things mean? 
probably the things that you think they mean. One who has clean hands, it's like the opposite of somebody who has blood on their hands. It's somebody who is innocent of wrongdoing against their neighbor. Somebody who is actually not using the people around them to get out of life what they want to get out of it, but somebody who is pouring their lives out for the person, for their neighbor, for the friend, for their family member, for the person around them. It's a person whose horizontal relationships are in order. All right. This is that clean hands thing is talking about our horizontal relationships, the relationships that we have with one another. Pure heart then is actually talking about the vertical relationship that we have with God. Those with pure hearts are those who come before the Lord with correctly ordered desires and motives. So not just about our actions among each other, but actually about our hearts. About the things that are that are our deepest motives, the things that drive us, the things that we hold most dear. And a pure heart before the Lord is one who comes and is honest, is transparent, who desires actually the Lord and His glory, who wants to come and draw near Him. And verse uh, verse six, or yeah, excuse me, verse six, he really kind of sums it up. He says, "It's those who come and seek the face of the Lord." Who want to come and be before Him, deep and intimate in relationship. To be before the Lord, to desire a deep and honest and intimate relationship with Him and with others. So what kind of people are we being called to be? What kind of people is the Lord hoping to shape us into through Psalm 24? It's simply those whose desire is for the Lord and for the people He's put around us who are faithful in their love and their service to God and to other. Or as Jesus said very simply, to love God with our whole hearts and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Now we've touched on two pretty big questions really that you should be asking honestly every time you open up the scriptures. What does this say about God? What does it say about me? And those are two big things. Whenever you open up any kind of scripture, those are helpful questions to ask. What does this say about who God is? What does it say about who I am? And what we see here is that God is portrayed as glorious, as transcendent, as holy, as creator and owner of all. And His people are those who are called to draw near to Him with clean hands, with pure hearts, and with correctly ordered desires and motives. So, how do we respond to that? Because I know many of you, there's something running in the back of your head that says, alright, what do I do with those two things? How do I put those two things together? There's typically two responses that we can kind of come to. Two kind of paths that we can lead down. Some are thinking, okay, if that's the case, is it, if God is, is that high and mighty and glorious and transcendent, and He is calling those to come to Him with clean hands and pure hearts, you know what I better do is I better wash up. I better clean those hands and purify that heart and get busy and try as hard as I can to purify myself so that I can draw near to God. Some of you are thinking that and some of, for some of you, that's the way that you consistently live your life. Some of you have actually swung to the other side of that and you've said, you know what, that sounds really kind of nice, you know, when you're talking about it in church and stuff, but when it really comes down to brass tacks, I don't think I can do that. In fact, I don't think I can get anywhere close to doing that and so guess what, I'm out. I'm out. I'm out. In fact, I knew this all along about you Christians. I knew that all you wanted to do was just kind of lay these heavy burdens on me. And so I don't want to have anything to do with God. I don't want to have anything to do with the, with, with the church. I'm just kind of out. Those are two paths that you could take. If you're thinking either one of those things, I'm going to just ask you to push the pause button for a second. Okay? Hold that thought. Set it aside. We're going to come back to it. Because this psalm is actually about a third thing that we need to talk about first before we come back to that. 
It is about the King. It's a psalm that's supposed to shape our understanding of who God is. It's a psalm that's supposed to shape our understanding of who His people are to be when they come and draw near to Him. But it's also a psalm that's supposed to shape our understanding of who the King is. Of what it looks like to follow the King. Look at these last few verses. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. And then there's this question and answer going back and forth. Who is this King of glory? He's the Lord of hosts. Who is this King of glory? He's the Lord of hosts. There's this interesting little interplay going on, like a knock-knock, who's there, right? You want to know who it is. Again, what is being pictured here is the holy city, Jerusalem, and the big gates. It's a walled city. There's a big wall around it and huge gates. And they are not going to just let anybody in. They're going to figure out who exactly is this that wants to come in and parade into the city and come to the temple. Who is it? Because we're only letting the king in. All the advances, it seems like, in smartphone technology lately are to try to figure out how to keep everybody else out of your phone and only let you in. And some of you are wishing, like, I wish Facebook tried to do that a little bit more. But, I mean, think about it, right? The thumbprint. First there was the code, you know, that you'd punch in. Then there was the thumbprint. And you're only getting in if you've got my thumb. Now there's facial recognition, right? And so it looks at my face and it only lets in my face. It's getting better and better and better, our phones are, at not letting anybody else in and only letting the owner in, the right person in. That's exactly what these gates are saying uh, when they're talking uh, in you know theoretical language to the king here. Who's coming in? Because we're only letting in the king. Nobody else is getting in. And the beautiful thing is that the king here at the end is actually described in the same way that the creator of all things is described in the beginning. The Lord of glory, the king of hosts, Yahweh, God's people, is not only the creator and the owner of all things, but he's the king of his people. And don't miss this, because this is really important, okay? Where is he going? He's coming into the city. This is a very important piece to understand if you're going to understand Christianity because there's no other religion actually that thinks about God this way. Is that God did not just say, I'm going to create all things and then see you later, I'm checking out, right? And he's aloof and he's somewhere standing in the back and just letting us take care of things. That's not the description we get from Psalm 24. What we get here is God actually coming in to be with his people. We read it in Deuteronomy 10. God says it again in Exodus 19. He says, I've created all things. All the earth is mine. Everything belongs to me. But I have chosen to come and be with you. I have chosen to come and live among you. I've set my heart and love upon you. I own it all. But I want to come and be with you. That is what the Lord is telling His people here. The Lord, the King of glory, is marching in triumphantly so that He can be with His people. We're going to take a little tour. So remember, this is a song, right? It's a song sung in worship. It's a really, really old song. Sometimes people are like, why do you all sing such old songs, you know, in your church? Well, this is a really old song, okay? It's been sung by God's people for literally thousands and thousands of years. So if you were singing this over the course of those thousands of years, what would it be like? Let's think about this. Immediately after this psalm was written. United Kingdom of Israel, David's son Solomon is the king. It's really a time of prosperity and everything is going pretty well. And God is actually defeating Israel's enemies all over. And you've got the king sitting on the throne who by and large looks like this true kind of worshiper. 
whose hands, for the most part, are clean and heart is pure. And you have God actually coming in, literally his people, you know, the general coming in after a battle, carrying the ark of the Lord, marching into the city through those gates and marching up to the temple. How do you sing this? You sing it gloriously, right? This is the Lord who's defeated our enemies. This is the Lord who's rescued us from bondage. This is the Lord who has given us this land. This is the Lord who has done all of this for us. He is glorious and majestic and wonderful. You're singing it as a hymn of praise. Now fast forward just a little bit. If you know the story of Israel, what happened after Solomon, not so good for quite some time. Because his sons were not very good kings. They actually split the kingdom. You have a kingdom in the north and one in the south where Jerusalem is, where the temple is. And for the most part, over and over and over, you have a series of bad kings. This is supposed to, the king is supposed to be the one who is the, the, the model worshiper. He's the one who's supposed to look the most like those verses 3 through 6. But over and over and over, what you have is a series of kings who are turning to other gods, who are leading their people astray. And you keep going for hundreds of years, and you end up where God finally says, you know what, you have walked so far away from me that you've actually walked into an alien territory. And God's people end up in bondage. They end up in exile. There is no king on the throne. There are all of these promises that, uh, that God would come and renew the world and do something amazing. They seem like they're not going to happen. So how do you sing this hymn, Psalm 24, if you're living in exile in Babylon? I mean, it's a lament, isn't it? It's a lament to say, the Lord is supposed to be marching in in glory. Where is He? It's a crying out for the Messiah. A crying out for a real king, a good king to come and to make things right. How about for us? How do we sing this? Well, here's the glorious truth, of course, of the New Testament. As we open up the pages of the New Testament, we hear that that lament is fulfilled. That that Messiah, that that true king has actually come. And he is not just a true king, he's a true worshiper. The only one whose hands truly are pure, clean. The only one whose heart truly is pure has come and he's come to lead his people. And then what nobody ever saw coming, he's actually come to lay down his life for his people. To give his life so that they might be made clean, so that they might be made pure. If you belong to Jesus, you sing this song in glorious praise of your King who has come not just to conquer your enemies of sin and death, that of course is what He has come to do, and not just to come march in triumphantly that we might sing His praise, although that is what we have called to do, and not just to come and be the model of what it looks like to be one whose hands are clean and whose heart is pure, of course that is what He has also done but also to make us us those who can draw near to Jesus, who can actually be brought near to the Lord through His blood, through His death. Now this gets us back to those questions that we asked before. If you hit pause there and then you fell asleep, this is the time to wake up, because we're going to address those things. How do we respond to this? And really there's only three ways, and we've talked about two of them. Right? The first one is, we just try harder. We say, okay, I read those verses 3 through 6 as a requirement, a list of requirements for the way that I'm going to come and be before the Lord and be brought into His presence. So I've got to just try harder. I've got to wash my hands. I've got to cleanse my heart. I've got to do as much of that as I can for a while. And, you know, sometimes that'll work for a while. But if you've ever done this, usually what happens is all of that kind of performing ends up turning into a lot of pretending. 
Because you can't hold that up for very long. And so you start to just kind of build it up and pretend and you develop kind of a false self, right? There's who you really are and there's who you present yourself to be before the Lord and before others. And as much as that grows, it ends up breaking. And inevitably, if you build your life on trying harder, you will end up failing and hating yourself. And more importantly, you will be hating God. What's our second option? Second option is you kind of just give up. And there's a cynical way of doing this, of saying, you know what, I see this high, you know, this high calling, I see this list of requirements, and I can't do it, and so you know what, I'm not even gonna try. I'm out of here. You Christians can go do all that stuff on your own, I'm gonna go have fun. And there's a cynical way of approaching that. But there's a Christian way of doing the same thing. And it's actually really prevalent kind of in our tribe. Because we can read verses 3 through 6 and we can go, okay, clean hands, pure heart, that's totally Jesus' job. He's done that. I don't even have to read this. I don't have to deal with it. I don't have to worry about it. I don't have to worry about what it looks like to be a true worshiper of the Lord because that's everything that Jesus has done. And we kind of put it aside. And we proclaim what Christ has done, but then we say, well, I guess there's nothing for me to do. I'll just go kind of do whatever I want. But that would actually be missing the point of the psalm. Remember, it's supposed to shape us. It's supposed to form us. It's supposed to change us into the kind of people that God calls into his presence. So our third option is, I hope that you know, the one that I would like us to embrace. And it is gospel-empowered holiness. Holiness, the pursuit of holiness, empowered by what Jesus has done for us. Where we look and we say, you know what, the one true king, the one true worshiper has laid down his life for me. And there's no way that I could perform enough. And there's no way that I could pretend enough. And this whole trying a harder thing is not going to work. But Jesus has actually done it. He actually has fulfilled the law. He actually has had clean hands and a pure heart. And it's through faith in him that he cleanses me. That He purifies me. And I am found in Him as one who has been brought before the throne. Before the face of God. I've been brought into God's family not by my own work, but by His work. Therefore, because of that, because of what Jesus has done for me, because He's changed who I am, I get to actually pursue the Lord. I get to draw near to the one who has drawn near to me. I get to pursue holiness. I actually get to be about the practice even of what it looks like to have clean relationships amongst those around me. To have pure and rightly desired or rightly ordered desires before the Lord. And my life is then built on that purpose. Where I draw near to Him, where I see my need and my great failing, where I turn to the cross and where I live my life there. I live my life at the foot of the cross, seeking to be one who is changed by God. That is what Psalm 24 is supposed to do to us. It's supposed to draw us near to the cross, so that we might seek to be formed as those who not only embrace and express the beauty of what Jesus has done for us, but desire even to be formed more and more every day into His image. Let me encourage you to spend this week, even this summer, as you spend some time in the Psalms this summer, just chewing on that concept. What would it be like for me to come put myself before the cross of Jesus in order to be formed by His grace and His love for me, that I might look more and more, even a little bit more and more like Him every day? Let's pray that the Lord would do that in us even now.
Father, we thank you for uh, your word revealed to us in Psalm 24. We praise you as the creator and owner of all things. But we do confess that we are those who often have dirty hands and defiled hearts. That is our nature. But Lord, we also know that you not only have cleansed us, but have called us to respond to that cleansing by coming before you, by falling on our knees, by seeking to be molded, shaped, formed in your likeness. We pray all of this, Lord, by your grace, by your mercy, and in your name. Amen.